This is the last coffee house. We're on the Jordan Peterson reading list, The Crisis of Islam, written by Bernard Lewis, published 2004. It's actually based on an article that was published in The New Yorker in November 2001. So that's smack dab in the 9-11 crisis. And so, obviously, Islam was getting fair and unfair criticism, and terrorism in general was being, by a lot of estimations, overly associated with Islam. And just me speaking, that said, the religion of Islam deserves every ounce of criticism for the doctrines and character of its founder and founders. But this book, in particular, is looking at the historical roots of resentment of the West by the Islamic world and the rise of militant Islam. Again, the actual book published 2004, article was November 2001, so it fell hard upon. They sound like they have non-essential work happening out there. Okay, so what's the content of this book? It starts out recalling the rhetoric that Bush would use. It's a war against terror, not a war against Muslims. And the author talks about how it changed from the ideas, the Islamic ideas, became a war against the U.S. Now, we previously read The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright, which I loved. It was a fantastic book. It explored the rise of Osama bin Laden in great detail. So if you're interested in this topic, then that's another book that you can have a look at. So Islam in particular uses a lot of references to history. History is very important. They have a deep appreciation for it. It's very common that they will rely on and reference history in trying to figure out what to do today. We have the Bin Laden statement that comes around that talks about how killing Americans is a duty. It's an Islamic duty. And that was a big shift, or at least a tentpole in the whole development of the conflict between Islamic sects and the West and what the West was doing. Under Islam, expulsion of religious minorities is rare, and the author contrasts this with Christianity, wherein Christianity actually expelled and persecuted a lot of minority religions when it was in power, as opposed to Islam. Of course, Islam doesn't have just pure <laughs> behaviors and intentions when it comes to other religions, but we'll see some more about that. And there was a big change from the 1930s in the the Islamic world after the discovery of oil. Then we have ideas about the presence of foreigners or Westerners being a desecration and outrage as part of a religious revival in Islam. Okay, Islam specifically. It existed in a time between Rome and Europe, and during this time, Islam was the great civilization. But now there's a widening gap between those things. It has always been closer to Judeo-Christian countries than it was to Asian, but there are a lot of differences. The relationship between government, religion, and society, the founder of Islam was his own Constantine. He didn't have to rely on a church and spreading a church throughout regions and the world to be able to get the message out. There's no tradition in Islam of resistance to state power. Obviously in Christianity, there's a long tradition of that. They had to choose between God and Caesar and make sure that they navigated when did that path properly when it came to the powers of each. This was not a concept that was present in Islamic society. Muhammad died in 632, and the whole idea throughout from 632 on, the idea of a secular country or being secular was alien to the Muslim world. Of course, much of this is an overgeneralization of the way that Muslims are and think and how they function today, but the author is saying that this historically, overall, is emphatically different, that you don't have even a concept of a secular world. The author brings up the Qadi and Mufti. Qadi is a judge. A Mufti is a kind of judge which was historically superior to the Qadi, and it can issue fatwa. 
was. It's very interesting to me, just to, personally, it's really interesting to think about all the different structures in Islamic society and how they function, where they came from, how the Hadith comments on all these things or builds them, and the struggle between Hadith and Quran and history and, I mean, all that stuff is, is really fascinating. The author points out that there was a difference between the way that the Islamic world treated America and treated the Soviets, despite the fact that the Soviets invaded Islamic countries. And another difference is that most of the Muslim countries are still powerfully Muslim, as opposed to Christian countries, which mostly are in countries that aren't particularly Christian, while Christianity may be a majority. They're primarily secular, with a lot of Christians in them. So there's a different level of the immunity of criticism when it comes to Christianity versus Islam. Of course, we saw that in the last couple of decades when it came to Christianity. Extremists, and there's a question of whether Muslim countries are a theocracy, and the author specifically points out that you don't really need a priesthood. You don't need the same kinds of structures that you would need in Christian countries to carry out a theocracy. But there was a revolutionary wave in Islamic countries. And the complaints that they primarily had were about humiliation, frustration, and contempt for Western society. And specifically the moral degeneracy of Western civilization. Islamic fundamentalism is a bit of a misnomer to the author, even maybe more than a bit of a misnomer. He believes that a lot of the uses of Islamic texts and ideas by fundamentalists or Islamists or jihadists are invalid, but he will go on to own up to a lot of the valid textual interpretations that have led to the terrorism that we have to deal with now. And most of the Islamic fundamentalists, they were anti-Western, but their primary targets were their own rulers. And it happened differently in different countries. So in so in Egypt, the leader was assassinated, but they weren't able to take over the state. In Iran, the revolution got to institute their own government. The Muslim world is far from unanimous in its rejection of the West. Some call the West enemies of God, and some say that God having enemies at all is kind of weird, and needing help with a fight against those enemies is really weird. However, the author gets across that fundamentalists are dangerous by the end of that chapter. He goes into a discussion about jihad, and everybody should know the conflict in an interpretation of this word by now. The difference between internal jihad or a moral striving to be better as a person and an external jihad, the physical arm striving that everybody's worried about. Both meanings, the author says, occur many times throughout the major texts of Islam and have been interpreted in many different, in both ways, throughout the history of Islam. You can hold jihad, or jihad against infidels and apostates, and the character of that jihad can be different. There's offensive and defensive jihad. Osama said it was defensive jihad that he was engaging in, and that everyone is obliged to defensive jihad. So... An offensive jihad would be like an attack, uh, an offensive attack on something, a defensive one, would be defending Islam or countries that are Islamic countries. There are different things in the hadith, like rules of warfare, things like no looting, no killing women and children, it's female privilege, good treatment of prisoners, these are things that have been recorded in the hadith. Predominantly, jihad is 
predominantly it's a military use of jihad in modern times. Martyrdom is different from suicide, and this was an important intellectual development when it came to Islam, because suicide is a sin. But martyrdom is one of the most glorious things that somebody can do. The author specifically points out how it's a misuse of jihad, however, such as the fatwa issued against Salman Rushdie. So that's not the right use of fatwas, and that's not the right application of jihad. And that martyrdom in itself is something that is a novel outgrowth and not something that should be supported currently. And of course, an apostate is far worse than a non-believer. If you are in the religion and then try to leave it, it's much, much worse than if you're just Christian or you don't believe in anything at all. You cannot be forgiven as an apostate. Men are put to death and women are flogged and imprisoned. There again, female privilege... There's no compulsion in religion, everybody's heard this term, but they are subject to certain disabilities, as they're called. They, they can be subject to taxes, and they can have bans on doing certain things. One idea, the Soviet Union replaced the Third Reich in opposing Zionism. So, the complex interplay of conflicts between groups will make interesting bedfellows. So the Soviet Union became a new patron against the West. And curiously, the American Revolution actually was mostly unnoticed and unknown in the Islamic world. The French Revolution was clear and something they were aware of, but the American Revolution was not. And then suddenly that changed and a negative view developed in Islamic countries, likely as part of an outgrowth of a negative American view in Germany, which viewed America as a society without culture. So these are the early rumblings of that anti-Americanism traced by this author. There was actually a pro-Nazi regime in Iraq. And of course, you ask the question, which is fair, were there any countries that didn't have pro-Nazi regimes? <laughs> and that's probably a fair question. But the basic anti-Western idea likely originated with Nazi and communist thinking and was something that was learned and cultivated in Islamic countries. Then, of course, you have galvanizing events like the 1953 overthrow of Mossadegh, with America, American and British backing, and nationalization of oil companies. And this was part of an agreement with the Shah to overthrow the government and install the Shah in lieu of Mossadegh. And you have writers developing at this time who start decrying the sinfulness and degeneracy of America. And then Khomeini calls America the Great Satan and Israel the Little Satan. There's the Iran hostage-taking situation, which was apparently to prevent good relations between the two countries, Iran and the United States. And one thing I had never considered, the U.S. as a victim of colonialism. Of course, the United States had to win its own independence. It suffered the same yoke of oppression from the British that a lot of other countries were feeling. So it's really weird, of course, nowadays, because people have short memories, they simply call America the colonial power and the sinful giant that just stepped on all the small countries around the world. But at one point, it, w it was colonized. It was... It had to fight for its own independence against a king that was tyrannizing how it could operate and do what it wanted to do and develop its own identity. The author goes into the Israel-Palestine conflict and points out how the Iran-Iraq war was far more destructive and not nearly reported on as the conflict between these two, the Israel and Palestine. Of course, that's kind of a misnomer. And he believes that it was because Israel is a democracy, so any criticism of that government is going to come out. It's going to get out there into the world. You're going to hear about it. Whereas a lot of the other countries, like Iran and Iraq, at the time at least... 
you wouldn't have that same ability to be able to get information out from that situation. And a lot of the complaints revolve around the fact that America was complicit with a lot of the tyrannical rulers who ruled in a lot of these places. In 1991, the United States called for a coup in Iraq, and the Kurds revolted and were suppressed violently. In Algeria, the military canceled elections. 80,000 victims resulted from the situation. But one thing that the author points out that's an important point is that Islamists, if they win, don't have to ensure the freedoms of opposing parties. Whereas if you have democratic opposing parties, they likely still have to ensure the individual rights of the Islamists. There's a lot of blame that goes America's way for things like poverty and tyranny and exploitation, support of the tyrants. But by virtually all societal health indicators, whether America was involved or not, they look bad for Islamic countries. The European-style system of democracy simply haven't worked in Islamic countries except single-party dominance. That's the thing that has been happening in those countries. And there was an Islamic burning of books, notwithstanding all of the Islamic Renaissance talk and the saving of Greek and Roman writers when Christians were burning those things during that period. But the Islamic civilization burned their share of books as well. And huge point here, Wahhabism would not have the footprint that it does, and it's an extreme version of Islam, but it would not have the influence that it does if Standard Oil hadn't issued an agreement or come to an agreement with the Saudis when it came to oil and made them so incredibly wealthy. So instantly you had Wahhabism leading a major, extremely wealthy country, and it gave it an outsized influence. So the only available religious education then is Wahhabism, which has more extreme religious thinking. And religious thinking just in general has benefits as advantages over secular thinking. It has established practices, it has regular meeting places, it has networks that are already in place. Those things give it an advantage. Then the author kind of turns directly to terrorism and what terrorism is and what it means and questions why the Irish, and I think this was more setting up this idea he questions why the Irish terrorists are not called Christian terrorists. Of course, talking from my voice, <laughs> myself, Christianity would have to have direct attachment to the ideas that lead to terrorism. That's the whole point. If in the founder of Christianity, that hippie in the sandals, if in the New Testament, there were a lot of verses that implored people to engage in violence or engage in something like violence to effectuate political ideas or whatever, then it should be held responsible for that. Just like any kind of homophobic sentiment, you could attach something of homophobia to Christianity pretty easily. There are numerous verses that say something about homosexuality being bad or being an affront to God or whatever. But just by the same token, even though it, we're in this special moment where we have this incredibly patronizing posture toward the Quran Islamic society, in America anyway, bad ideas are bad ideas, period. So a bad idea that can be interpreted reasonably or directly says something terrible, like women are worth less than men or something like that, then that can be attributable to the religion. But things like in, in the Quran, as far as I know, they have very few verses that are anti-science, that go against, that say that you have to be wary of ideas that come out of science. But there are things in the New Testament that have made people wary about allowing science to overstep its bounds. And curiously, in the Quran, you have, when it comes to textual criticism in Christianity, when you find contradictions or something like that, there's this whole apologist discipline where you try to figure out, okay, ways 
ways around explaining your way out of these contradictions. In Quran, in the Quran, they made it in Islamic society, they made it pretty easy. They just said that things can be replaced. So older ideas in the Quran or Hadith can be replaced, and then it's not a contradiction, it's just an evolution or a replacement for the previous idea, which of course is unfalsifiable. There's nothing you could do about that. Then anything, just the newest idea is the one that's correct, and, and you're done, and it was never contradictory, it just changed somehow. I don't know. The author points out how fatwa has a negative connotation, but actually it's just a legal determination and shouldn't have that broad negative connotation to it. And there's always been a judicial process in Islam, but some say that insulting the Prophet justifies a suspension of the process. There were these people called the Assassins in early Islam, who were the predecessors of modern terrorists. They engaged in tyrannicide, however. They only killed the target and got eternal bliss if they died in the process. They were far from the mainstream at the time, but the character of terrorism changed over time as you went along. So there were national terrorists of the 60s and 70s who tried to survive, Islamic terrorists at the time. But they didn't think about suicide. They, th they wanted to survive and continue the struggle. The new suicide terrorists kind of developed in the 1980s and onward. And most of them are male, young, and poor. There were female in some. They started using female suicide bombers. But they would give stipends to the family. And as I mentioned earlier, suicide under Islam is a sin, so they had to get around this. You would be tormented by your method of suicide forever if you committed suicide. And it changed from only attacking your target to there were no innocent civilians. And the whole idea of the separation of church and state is completely anathema to Islam, according to the author. So then the author finishes up by warning that the struggle between Western and anti-Western influences in the Islamic world will determine its fate and whether it enters the global community on good footing or regresses into conflict and violence. So that's The Crisis of Islam. It's actually a really short book, and this is a really long episode, so I'm not sure how that happened. But there was a lot of information in it. It had a lot to talk about. I didn't go through and vet each of the claims when it came to what the book was making. I think this is a relatively esoteric area for anybody, especially from the West, to be diving into. Having said that, bad ideas are bad ideas. <laughs> not having an idea of uh, a secular state uh, that can ensure the rights of everybody equally, that's, that's a huge deal. That's a huge concern and something that any nation or any civilization should be able to develop if they're going to want to be able to incorporate all the different ideas and individual freedoms that should be part and parcel of functioning in a modern world. Now this was right after 9-11, so the ability of this author to be critical of, of Islam in this way I think is relatively admirable, but these are, as we've talked about before, these are dealing with extremely massive causes and effects, influences, and memes, and all that stuff that people have to deal with on personal levels and collective levels. And so drawing broad conclusions about these things and why people do what they do is extremely difficult in this context. When it comes to Islamic countries feeling slighted or that there was a desecration of their land or that the West is a degenerate place and, and all that, and that being an explanation scientifically for why people who do 
what they do, you have to take that with a generous portion of salt because, of course, we barely understand an individual's psyche, so it's very difficult to say that some massive population of a billion people, or however many, act in a certain way for particular reasons. But that is not actually much of an attack on this book. I think the book does a very good job of kind of parsing the different possible explanations for a lot of things that are going on. In the broader context, I think right now, the situation that we're in, we've got a left that is doing its damnedest to try to inoculate Islam from any criticism because it's trying to place them in the fold of identity politics, which is uh, just as ridiculous as it gets, ignoring the substance of something and excluding any kind of a substantive understanding of what's going on for the sake of just looking at somebody's skin color or gender or what their group is. Is everything wrong with the modern world? <laughs> Which is a bit of overstatement. People not understanding the complexity of storytelling that's also wrong in the modern world and not having good health and eating right and all that stuff. Those are also problems. But it's pretty much the biggest problem trying to fold people based on identity into groups. Pretty much the biggest problem that we have right now. <laughs> so in the broader context, that's kind of where we are. And books like these kind of illuminate a lot of the bad ideas, but they also add some apologia to people doing really stupid things. So just like when you enable people doing stupid things, they're going to be empowered to do stupid things. So when you just say that it's part of their culture or, you know, to be offended or engage in terrorism or something like that, then a lot of people who read something like this, they're going to take little bits of it and say, well, America did this and America overthrew Mosaddegh and America America didn't support the Kurds in 91, so therefore it's okay for them to do these things. Uh, no, absolutely not. You have to criticize what's wrong, and you can move back into history and try to figure out what caused those things, but the number one thing is to stop that person from doing it, to stop the people from engaging that behavior that's causing severe damage to society, whether it's on a local or national level. So don't shy away and be honest about threats posed, ideas that are bad, and the reality that Islamic countries need to figure out this whole idea of individual rights and getting off of this morphine drip of religion and take that big step into modern society. Of course, there are many Islamic societies who are taking broad, big steps in that direction, and they're just doing it in such a way, there are a lot of enlightened leaders in these places who are doing it in such a way that's going to make sense to the population. They have to do it that way. There's there's no way you can just lurch it right into, into the future without possibly saying it over the edge. So I completely understand that. But hopefully they do it enough and get to the point of being in a position that maximizes the well-being of the people under their rule. So anyway, that's that's a discussion about all that stuff that you just heard. This was The Last Coffee House. I've got some stuff coming up. We're going to keep reading books. We're going to try to get through all of them. We'll see how long, <laughs> how long we can go. <laughs> Literally all the books. Right now we're doing three uh, politically related and intellectually related reading lists. We're doing doing Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, and Jordan Peterson. And I didn't realize it, but I picked a left, a right, and a middle. <laughs> so I think uh, that was that was the point in my brain somewhere. That was the point. So we're trying to get a full-scale understanding of everything that's going on and be able to move on from there. Also, the literature stuff on the side, because I love it. I love it to death. But that was The Last Coffee House. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye. <laughs>